listening and welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery store and specialty food store, you can now order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Good food, great community. Also thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Clipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. All right, later in the program, uh, we're going to be talking about how a human rights group has concluded that Israel is an apartheid regime. We're going to analyze that. We'll also be talking with Charles Goldman about uh, the filibuster and the movement to erode voting rights. We'll also talk with Charles about cancel culture. And then Ben Hawks is going to join Kathy Burns and I to talk about front yard maple syrup. And our first guest today is Dave Funk. Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you. Ed. Great to be with you guys today. Dave is a retired airline captain, I believe. That's correct. Among other things. Dave also ran for the U.S. Congress, something he and I share. That was a long time ago, my friend. Yeah, and, and the, the other part of that that we share is that we both lost. <laughs> <laughs> the forces of the establishment and the status quo will come at you with both barrels blazing if they think you're there to upset the apple cart in any way, shape, or form. Fair enough? Well, I'd, I'd certainly agree with that. And, you know, I know one of the things you and I will talk about today is, you know, my support of President Trump. And I don't think you could have said it any better than you did just now. Um, why do many people support him, myself included? He upset the apple cart. Love him or hate him. Um, he certainly threw a rock in the wrench or a wrench in the works out there in Washington, D.C., didn't he? Do you think Trump went too far? You know, in some place, some ways, maybe. Um I would I would debate that anything you can do to rein in the size and scope of the federal government is probably a good thing. Trump was, uh, to me and to many people, he seems so far off the pale. I mean, some of the most controversial, controversial remarks, for example, uh, mocking a disabled reporter, um, some of the comments demeaning women, um, supporting waterboarding, uh, calling some countries s-hole countries that's as far as i can go with that word on an right. fcc regulated station i mean do, do, you, do you have trouble with any of that or is it is it just not that big a deal well hey, i don't think it's that big a deal but more importantly let me say why i don't think it's that big a deal um how someone conveys a message i grew up in buffalo new york i'm used to dealing with people from new york city and they <laughs> tend to punch first and punch often and the best thing you do is punch back at them do I love him? Yeah, I'm highly respectful of the guy, but he's a New York City guy, and I'm from <laughs> Buffalo, and he's upstate. I'm upstate, he's downstate, and I'll always be that little chuckle and, you know, shrug of the shoulders at each other, but well, that's just the way the guy is. He, he, did, he did what most uh, older New York residents do, right? They, he moved to Florida. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I'm curious, though. I, I mean, you're a lifelong Republican, I believe, but have you ever, did you ever are there any Democrats you've ever voted for? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I go through, you know, I had to kind of dig long and hard. Uh, Paul Wellstone was a good example when I lived in Minnesota. The guy running against him wasn't very good. I didn't agree with Paul on very much on um, policy, 
but he was essentially one of the most honest people I'd ever known in my entire life. You know, he didn't try to hide what his ideas were. He was proud. And if you liked him, you supported him. If you trusted him, you supported him. Um, and so he, he's probably the most prominent one that's come to mind. Do you see that quality? Do you see that quality in President Trump? Is that quality that attracted you about Wellstone? Is that there in is, Trump? I don't see it in Trump. Well, maybe not the um, elder statesman like you and I would think of a of a Bush or maybe even Jimmy Carter post presidency. But Paul Wellstone, in his own right, was quite a bit of a firebrand. I mean, he wasn't afraid to get in anybody's face and, and right. duke it out with him in the arena of ideas. And so in some ways, he's a lot like President Trump or was a lot like President Trump, rest his soul, he and his wife, Sheila. Um, and I think he was I think he was a lot tougher and a lot more uh, willing to get out and fight for what he believed in, kind of like President Trump did. You know, do you want to go along to get along? If you wanted just pure statesmen, be nice, be uh, nice. Don't don't upset the apple cart. Then you should have voted for Jeb Bush. Uh, and I was not a big Jeb Bush fan, to say the All least. Right. Uh, so yeah. something else we have in common, Dave, is uh, our passion for organic farming. And in fact, you're the second Trump voter in just over two months that I've had on this program. Who is mm -hmm. an organic farmer? You retired from aviation. Now you're growing crops organically. Yep. Yep. We, we've we got a, or I shouldn't say we, it's I, I'm single nowadays. Uh, I have a, it's not a big farm. It's just a hundred acres down the Melcher Dallas area. And it's that highly erodible rolling hills south of the Des Moines River. And, you know, for years it was used for corn and beans, just conventional row crop farming. And um, I didn't like what was, what I saw going on with the soil. And I, and I switched over to organic, started the process four and a half years ago, was certified last year um, about this time and converted it to an alfalfa grass crop, um, you know, grass hay and alfalfa. It's a timothy grass. And I couldn't believe over that three-year period, I had to go from having, um, you know, no chemicals at all. So I backed up three years. To when was the last Roundup application? Uh, three years, it'd be four years ago this summer. And spots on my farm that were just sludge, muck, where nothing would grow, Three years later, I've got the most beautiful grasses that you would you would not believe. You know, the best uh, greenskeepers in the country would like to have grass this nice. And I got to think that just not putting the herbicides and the pesticides on that farm, it's really approved. We've got more than, I got to quit saying we, we've got more than 20 uh, beehives on it. I'll have about 30 or 35 this year talking to my farmer the other day or my beekeeper the other day. And the biodiversity out there is just phenomenal. And the the ground is very healthy. And it's just, I'm looking at that. It's okay. It's probably the highest, best use of this, of this ground is organic farming. Why aren't more farmers, conventional farmers, switching to organics with those kinds of benefits that you described? Well, you know, I don't know. To tell you the truth, I don't know. I, I wish I had the answers. One of the things I would really like us to stop doing is burning food for energy. Um, I'm not a big ethanol fan. I'm not a big biodiesel fan. You know, let's let's get our energy from either renewable sources, from nuclear, from hydrocarbons, and leave the darn, you know, not be burning food because people around the world would eat that. It seems like the, the federal farm support system is set up to support the conventional approach to agriculture. Um, you know, commodity crops as much as possible, the more the better. Fence row to fence row, as Earl Butt said, you, you know, decades right. ago. And, and that's one of the impediments to people doing what you're doing is the whole setup supports something else. 
You know, you're right. And, and but for the fact I can afford to own my farm, whether it makes income or not, um, puts, you know, puts me in a position where I can afford to go organic. I've got an old friend from the Galesburg, Illinois area, and he's converted a conventional 360-acre farm years ago by Knoxville, Illinois, between Knoxville and Galesburg. And um, he just he converted it to organic, and he just about went broke in the process because it took three years. And as you said, there's no subsidies for it. Right. I'm not a big subsidies guy regardless. I don't want to see any federal subsidies, any state subsidies. Let's just let the market decide. Uh, I don't care whether it's ag or corporate subsidies or tax abatements. I don't like them. But I want to switch gears to something very relevant to organic crop production and agriculture generally, and that's climate change. Uh, I, I, yep. there's, there's so much to say about that. Let me just start with a quote from NASA. Uh, their website prominently features this quote. Uh, Multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97% or more of actively publishing uh, climate scientists agree that climate warming trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activities. Is that an assessment that you agree with? I'm not sure I agree with it because you can look at historical data on, on what, you know, for the questionable accuracy we have more than about 150 years worth, you know, being very precise. We've got thousands of years of roughly 174, 175 years climatic cycles of warming and cooling. And you can see entire civilizations rise and fall within those time periods. Again, science is saying... It's happening fast. It's happening because of our activity. And what are we going to do about it? And maybe we can move beyond the question of what we're going to, you know, why it's happening to what are we going to do about it? I mean, you agree that something's happening. Well, the climate continuously changes. I won't, I won't argue that. We all know that that's the case. My question is how much of it has to do with the sun and how much of it has to do with man and what's the interrelationship? You know, we can, we can, if we can destroy the earth, we could heal it. Well, I'm not sure we can heal it. I'm not sure that it's, you know, I, I love to read your blog every week so when, you know, your emails and they come out and, and you talk about, um, you know, the climate in crisis. I don't believe it's in crisis. And I've traveled enough around the world that I just don't have the view from Des Moines, Iowa, from, you know, Marion County, where I now live. Uh, and look around and see the, you know, the, the organic farm and, well, it's beautiful here. It must be okay everywhere. Um, you know, we Iceland got its name or Greenland got its name back when it was mostly green and not a lot of glaciers. You know, the southern third was a you know, very productive, very cultivatable, um, uh, you know, almost a continent. It's so big. I've flown over it several times. I know what it looks like, you know, how big it is, how long it takes to fly across it in a jet and, you know, at 550 miles an hour. So three quarters of the earth is covered with water. And ocean temperatures aren't rising in the Pacific. They're lower than they've oh, been oh, in about no, three decades. But, no, they are rising. The, the, the ocean temperatures are definitely rising, Dave. I mean, that's, well, that's documentable. Like, you know, we have the La Nina and La Nino. You know, we're in the cooler of the two cycles right now in the Pacific. So long, long term, I'm not sure, A, we have accurate data to measure it. Not that I'm hiding behind inaccurate data or, you know, the ability to collect it. What I'm saying is do we make major policy changes for minimal return on investment. We have no substitute for oil in the short term. Let's figure out how to burn it very cleanly. And I'm not, I'm not a big believer in this whole idea of sequestering carbon because being an organic farmer, I know what my alfalfa eats. It eats carbon dioxide. So yeah. we need enough to sustain it. And uh, uh, gas at seven tenths of the, op of 1% uh, of the atmosphere 
I don't see how it makes that big a difference when the sunspots have a far bigger impact on us on a daily temperature basis than any any small amount of gases that are in the atmosphere. Well, I, I know that, you know, I mean, we have a small-scale organic operation in, in Des Moines, mm-hmm. yep. and we, we rely on on, I mean, we have we have a lot of expertise ourselves from our combined what sixty years of experience, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, we also rely on what other people do, um, what the scientific community says, and 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 I'm sure, especially when you've got a larger operation. I mean, I know yours isn't huge, but it's certainly bigger than what we've got. You, mm-hmm. I'm sure you look to what other people are doing, uh, especially those who done those kind of scientific experiments and studies that, that kind of recommend best practices and. Uh, yeah. I just, uh, I, I just, I, I, I don't know what it takes to get us to the point where we're saying, okay, so, you know, maybe there are a few people who deny what's happening in terms of the impact of fossil fuels on the climate, but it seems to me we've got to get to the point of saying, okay, um, this is for real, and we've got to take action. All right, but do we take action in such a way that it destroys the livelihoods and the, and the economic capacity, not just of our nation, but of developing nations? Let me let me uh, let me ask you a few questions that are basically mm-hmm. agree or disagree type questions. All right. Sure. The amount of money spent on political campaigns is excessive. Uh, simple agree or disagree. I disagree. Okay. It's not that much in the grand scheme of things. All right. The average person pays too much in taxes. Uh, yes. Uh, antitrust laws intended to prevent monopolies are weak or non-existent. Uh, I would generally agree that they're unenforced not that they're weak or non-existent they're not being used properly okay the uh, federal government has grown too big and intrusive absolutely Um, more more power needs to stay with local governments instead of the state or feds agree Uh, governments spend too much on taxpayer handouts to corporations Um, I'd agree with that, but I'll also put the caveat in that I don't think there ought to be any corporate taxes because anybody that grasps common economics knows corporations don't pay taxes, their customers do. So it's just a pass-through from you and me to to wherever. The uh, corporate-owned mainstream media's focus is to preserve the status quo. Yes, agree. Supporting local business is better than spending money at chains or Amazon. Uh, I generally say, I generally agree with that. I prefer to buy food from local and or organic sources. Oh, agree. Uh, the First Amendment and our freedom of speech is being eroded. Agreed. Uh, individuals in government must do more to address climate change. Uh, I'm neutral. Okay. Because um, I don't know what we can do that's effective. Both major political parties are overly influenced by moneyed interests. Agree. Well, Dave, congratulations. You and I agree on 10 out of 12 things. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? We are so much, you know, we might view different policies as the way to get things done, but I think ultimately, like most adults, you and I can look at, at each other and have an a, agree to disagree, but with few exceptions, we want what's best for our families, for our communities, for our, for our basically for our prosperity. Well, Dave, I really want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Dave Funk. He's a retired airplane pilot and currently uh, organic farming in uh, Marion County, Iowa. David, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Ed. I love to get to talk to you every chance I get. All right, when we come back, folks, uh, we're going to be talking about a recent uh, report regarding uh, human rights in Israel and Palestine. Stay with us, folks, on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks to our nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, who have been building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change since 2015, also focused on preventing the abuse of eminent domain and protecting Iowa's soil, air, and water. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get information about classes and workshops at Birds, Bees, Urban Farm. Dot org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, welcome back to the program, folks. And I'd like to welcome Maria Raves to the show. Today, we are going to be talking about the um, way the coronavirus vaccination uh, situation has been handled in Israel. But I also want to first take a look at a report that just came out by a human rights group, uh, Bet Salam. It's uh, also called the, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories. Maria, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And I suspect you are familiar with this report, which is fairly, uh, fairly significant, um, basically saying that Israel is not a functioning democracy. It's an apartheid regime. That's a fairly harsh assessment. I'm, I'm familiar with it. In fact, for the past five and a half years after my first trip to the area, I came back and said it's an apartheid state. And so this is not news to anybody who has traveled there and gone to the Palestinian areas, and it's certainly not new to Palestinians. So, I mean, well, I mean, you look at the some of the, and again, it's very calm and rationally presented. And this is an Israeli-based organization. This is, look, let's just be honest about this. Uh, you know, you've got one set of practices for Jews, another set of practices for Palestinians, uh, and, and huge discrepancies in between. Uh, this is not a fair uh, and, in any respect, a democratic process. Uh, how, you know, is, is that likely to be received very, um, is, is the international community likely to take any action based on this report? Um, I, I hope they do. Um, but yes, there's, there are two separate 
existences, one for Jews and one for non-Jews in Israel. Um, if you are not Jewish, you don't have full rights. And if you are Palestinian, you have even less than a another type of non-Jew there because your your freedom of movement is curtailed, your basic liberties, your voting rights, your freedom of speech, your any, any kind of, of freedom we take for granted here, you don't have as a Palestinian or non-Jew in Israel. And we could probably spend an entire program talking about any one of those aspects, but one one that is particularly relevant to this program today, since later we'll be talking about efforts to further suppress the vote in this country. How, um, how, how is the Jewish, the, the Israeli government using voting uh, to suppress the Palestinian voice in government there? Palestinians um, are not uh, allowed free and fair elections. And uh, the if, if they are allowed, like, say, for the, the, the Palestinian Authority based in Ramallah, um, this, it was put this way by Dr. Jim Zogby um, from D.C., who founded the Arab American um, Institute. Right. Uh, the winner of, of an election in, in, in the occupied territories gets the booby prize. They get to administer the occupation. So... Um, hmm. That's that's the best way to sum it up. You get to administer the occupation if you win an election, wow. and you're you're Palestinian. So, okay. and that's not exactly what we would call a democratic process. In terms of um, administering uh, important things, uh, the vaccination, uh, coronavirus. Israel has received uh, accolades in the uh, mainstream media for being one of the best, if not the best, nation in terms of getting its population vaccinated. Um, getting Jewish people in Israel the vaccination, yes, but in, in administering to Palestinians, it's it's pretty non-existent. Um, I'm more familiar with what with what's happening in Gaza because I have um, relationships with various organizations and people in Gaza from my work there. And for example. Um, Israel controls everything that enters and exits Gaza through land, air, and sea. Um, so by all definitions, that's occupation, even though they physically left Gaza in 2005. Um, but the fact that they control by force everything that enters and exits by land, air, and sea means um, they're still occupying that area. Uh, they it, It's nearly... It, it's it's asinine as to what gets banned um, and what doesn't through Gaza. And for example, cilantro <laughs> is one of cilantro? the items. At one point, you couldn't bring into Gaza or pasta or medicine. Um, so imagine how much more difficult it's going to be to get life-saving vaccines into Gaza during a pandemic under these normal situations of occupation and siege. So, so you, you would think that uh, that perhaps they would, well, first of all, some of those things make no sense to me at all, not just cilantro, but um, but certainly uh, your your normal supplies of medicine. But, but with the coronavirus, I, I would think that the country would be establishing a set of criteria. Okay, folks in nursing homes first here, frontline workers 
you know, are they toward the front. In, in Israel, Palestinians are seen as subhuman. So they're seen as, as not deserving of basic human rights. And you can... Um, you can argue that till the cows come home, but just looking at the the reality on the ground, it's it's quite clear. So they don't see Palestinians as human or as deserving of a vaccine, even though it would be in their benefit, Israel's benefit, to vaccinate every Palestinian um, who lives in the occupied territories, whether it's West Bank or Gaza. But they don't. Um, Gaza recently received 5,000 um, doses of the Sputnik Russian vaccine um, through the United Arab Emirates, who who paid for it, um, and it was it was through the World Health Organization, the WHO, who helped get it in, and they used that to vaccinate um, healthcare workers and the most the sickest of the sick or, or the most elderly. Um, They've had around 600 deaths in Gaza from COVID over the past year, and it seems as though they may have reached herd immunity, which is something that we want when it comes to infectious diseases, but we don't want to reach herd immunity through infection rate, which is how right. um, herd immunity has been reached in Gaza. We want to reach herd immunity through immunizations. Right. Now, looking, so, at, looking at some data... Uh, from uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, and this is from a couple weeks ago. It says around 50% of the Israeli population has been uh, fully vac- vaccinated with with, uh, with both doses. Yet in the, in the Palestinian uh, percentage of the population, it's born, it's 0.8, so it's less than 1%. That's as of two, as of two weeks ago. 1% versus 50%. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's clearly I, I something wrong with that. <laughs> but that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like everything that I've heard from um, the the organizations and and the people on the ground there. So, is there anything the international community could could do, even 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 the U.S. government could do, to step in and say, okay, this is not fair, this is not right, it needs to be addressed? Oh, certainly. There's lots of things we can do. We can have our leaders say, no, no, you are occupying these people. And under international law, you have an obligation to provide medical care to them, including um, immunizations, vaccines during um, any time, especially a pandemic. So but we don't have the political will here for that. So, yeah, people can go and email their or call, you know, their elected um, officials uh, and and demand this, but I don't know where the will is among yeah. the people. And honestly, when um, when we have our specific elected officials in in Congress and U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate, um, there's maybe what we have one Congress person who who would listen. Um, I, I I'm pretty confident that you know the republican um legislators that we've elected from our state don't care and mm. and don't see it as an as even an issue well, it's so. remarkable and, and and disturbing and hopefully uh hopefully this report helps hopefully the report coupled with the hard evidence about the discrepancy uh between vaccinations in the palestinian portion of the population and the israeli and the jewish population hopefully that'll that'll find some some residents. Uh, Maria, thank you. Uh, we got to run to a break. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
for having me. Folks, we've been talking with Maria Raves, and uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes. Charles Goldman's going to join us. We're going to be talking about ending the filibuster as a necessary step forward to protecting the right to vote across the U.S. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Markets Rewards Program is now free for all Gateway shoppers. You can sign up in person or via Gateway's online shopping site to earn points by shopping in person and online. Redeem those points for discounts at the time of your purchase. The program is valid for everything except catering or cafe purchases. And Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas-Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, too. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We're broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our business partners, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or simply call Dr. Holding at 515 232 8766. That's 515-232-8766. All right, again, welcome back to the program, and I'm delighted to have my friend Charles Goldman joining us here. Charles, welcome to the program. How's it going, Ed? It's going all right. Um, so voting rights under attack across the country, including in Iowa, and uh, it looks like in many states there's very little that can stop Republicans from doing from doing anything they want to make it harder to vote. Well, it, it was really interesting because you know the um, Supreme Court heard uh, arguments for two cases coming about coming out of Arizona as to whether restrictions that are put in place by the states that although they may not intend to be directed at a certain class of voters if in, if in fact they do affect only a certain class of voters, whether they fall under the prohibitions of the Voting Rights Act. And the um, attorney general who was making the argument, you know, defending these various Republican-led restrictions, basically said, admitted to in front of the Supreme Court, well, unless we have these kind of restrictions, we're not competitive. He literally said this in the <laughs> argument. Right. And, yeah, yeah there's, there's over 250 laws that state legislatures and Republican-controlled legislatures are trying to pass to uh, restrict uh, access of the uh, you know preferred demographic that they don't want to see at the polls. But do we do we really expect the Supreme Court to rule in favor of uh, of of any uh, of anything that would allow fairness of vote? I mean, they've they've been coming down on the wrong side of this consistently, and I don't understand why Democrats would have brought this case in this Arizona. A case to the court, knowing how they're likely to rule. Yeah, I think that's a good point, which is we already know that this this 
sort of same Supreme Court somehow found that there is no uh, continuing racism to justify yeah. you know, continuing the uh, Title II section right. of the you know, Voting Rights Act, which required pre-review. And by the way, uh, some of the original municipalities involved in pre-review were uh, three boroughs in New York City. So um, it wasn't, it, of course, it was mostly southern states, but it wasn't just southern states. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty transparent. I mean, Republicans don't like the fact that more and more people turned out to vote. They continue to badly lose the black vote. Uh, they continue, not by as much, but they continue to lose the Latino vote. They're suffering in the suburbs. They're going to find a way to disenfranchise as much as possible without calling it that, disenfranchise constituencies that don't vote Republican. I mean, gerrymandering has been their best friend, but they've relied on a whole bunch of other tools as well, and they're trying to expand. I mean, in Georgia, trying to trying to make it impossible to vote on Sunday. Why? Well, well they're because, only going to have one Sunday available. That's correct. Right, because because black churches tend to have their service, and then they turn out to vote. <laughs> so, let's, so let's stop and that from happening. And they're also restricting people uh, bringing food and water to people who are standing on, you know, interminable lines. That they help, that they help create. To open in the black part of uh, Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, that is so, that is so blatantly wrong. And yet, if that, if that law passes, if that bill passes, becomes law, if it's challenged and brought to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is likely to punt on it. It's, they're likely not to rule that it's, uh, it's wrong, which is astounding to me. That's correct. So what's our what's our I mean what's our remaining option? How do we stop this clear and 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 transparent erosion of the right to vote? Probably the worst we've seen in terms of election uh, voting access since the Jim Crow era. That's correct. Uh, well, I mean, it, it looks as as though at this point that Congress may actually have to legislate. I mean, they're not particularly good at doing that anymore, but. Um, we're going to have to legislate a new voting rights act, and that essentially is, you know, HR one that came over. The House did it through the Senate. Yeah, yeah, the House did it. Um, but the main issue, of course, is the filibuster. Right. And 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 the filibuster discussion, of course, is, is so completely historically wrong. Uh, you know, you've got you've got senators talking about the filibuster is there to defend the rights of the minority and to encourage debate and, and compromise and bringing them in. No, the filibuster, if you want to talk about systemic racism, the filibuster was put in place by the southern states to preclude federal action against slavery. You know, sort of like the Second Amendment. When was the filibuster established? Uh, Pre-Civil War, John Calhoun was, you know, given... Uh, credit for bringing in the—it's a rule. It's not. Right. And, and there's nothing constitutional about it. Right. I mean, in fact, in the Federalist Papers, you know, the founding fathers were very much against the idea of a supermajority yeah. in the legislative body. But any any time one particular party has the advantage in the Senate, they're hesitant to change the filibuster. They're hesitant to do away with the filibuster because they're afraid that next time they're in the minority, they're going to they're going to lose the power to stop stuff they don't like. Well, yes, I understand that, but first of all, that's the, that is not the way to frame this question, which is, it's not the issue of the, getting rid of the filibuster, it's the issue of getting rid of the cloture rules that force the majority, actually, to have to defend their position against the minority, who just gets to say we're filibustering. And that was brought in with the Mansfield rule back in the 70s, I believe, early 70s, and that was a democratic idea. You know, which was nobody has to stand there and read the telephone book anymore. 
um, you, if you're going to filibuster, you just get to say you're going to filibuster, and basically it's the majority that has to keep showing up yeah. to to keep the debate going. No, I mean a lot of the arguments, you know, because we know that Joe Manchin has said that he will not eliminate the filibuster, but he did say over the weekend he is amenable to you know changing some of the terms of the filibuster. First of all, you could change it so that it's not. Um, a two-thirds majority of the entire Senate. It could be two-thirds majority of the people of the senators who were there, which would mean that if if you want a filibuster, you're going to have to be there, and you know, making them stand up and talk. Stop well, with this idea that you can just say I'm filibustering. Okay, well, they, they, they can filibuster, they, stand stand there on C-SPAN. Well, they can talk. And, you know, we know they can talk. They didn't didn't they just require uh, one Republican senator require that all hundred thousand words of the uh, recent yeah, but that's not, be read. But the, the point <laughs> is, is that the, the way the filibuster is supposed to work is that you need to stop all the work of the Senate, which for the Republicans would mean you know trying to get another tax break for the rich. You know, if you want a filibuster, nothing else gets done. So the 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 actual political legislative price is paid and also do you want to be on c-span and cnn and all the others you know networks standing there filibustering against the 15 dollar you know uh minimum wage yeah see there's no cost because it's invisible so and mansion said he would be willing to make the changes to force actual attendance to be part of the filibuster which means see the weird thing is the filibuster means the majority has to stay around not the minority yeah, right. There's no cost to right, that. Right, right. Yeah. So, well, it, it, but I mean, the bottom line is, is, is there anything less democratic in our government right now than the filibuster? I mean, yes. Any, there is? The, What's the, that? The Electoral College. And, oh, okay, well. Know, most, of, <laughs> most of the voting rules in the United States. Yeah, the well. United States is one of the few you know, advanced democracies in which you have to register to vote. In many places, you have to opt out not to vote. Because you're automatically registered. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it's absolutely ludicrous that the supposed, you know, and you know, Biden's talking about we're gonna we're gonna bring democracy to all these other, you know, places. That's gonna be the base of our foreign policy. Yeah. How about bringing it here to the United States? <laughs> yeah. In some know, places, you, in some countries, you yeah. actually you actually have to vote or you get fined. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Right. I mean. It, it, it shouldn't be this hard to vote. It's no. just simple as that. Well, Charles, i got to run to a short break here. Uh, when we come back, folks, uh, Charles is going to stick with us. We're going to talk about cancel culture. All right, back in a minute here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, folks. This is Ed Fallon, and uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman today. And uh, before we continue our conversation, I want to thank uh, one of our other business uh, partners. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Uh, Noche features both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Check out Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, Charles, welcome back to the program, folks. Uh, again, Charles Goldman with us, and we're going to switch gears here and and uh, let the conversation about voting rights and the filibuster stand for a bit while we look at cancel culture. Charles, have you been canceled yet? <laughs> no. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I have multiple times. Yeah. And yet somehow I persist. Well, I, which which... Which event of the cancel culture, the ongoing cancel culture event, are you most interested in today? Well, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it's... Dr. A, Seuss. <laughs> well, I, 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 we can certainly talk about... Do- Dr. Seuss wasn't canceled, okay? It was a, a, a decision made by the Seussians themselves to pull six books. So when Fox News says Dr. Seuss canceled, they're just, they're just blowing smoke. But I do question the wisdom of the... Of the uh, corporation's decision to pull those six books. I mean, at what point do you say, okay, that was history, even though it's not appropriate by today's standards, it's okay. It existed in the past, and we're just going to accept the fact that it's out there. Well, you know, it's, actually, I, I think of a lot of the things that have come up in, in, in the sense of cancel culture, I think the, the Seuss controversy is really quite interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, it wasn't the left and Antifa that canceled it. It was, as you point out, the, the estate that basically, you know, the trust on which these books are published. Now, of the six books, most of them weren't selling at all. I mean, <laughs> like four of them hadn't sold a copy in like over a year. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So, you know, to some degree, it was it was partly a business decision. But hey. it's I, I, I think it's actually quite a fascinating discussion, which is why... It, you know, why are people reacting the way that they are? Well, first of all, people are reacting the way they are because of what's prescribed by their tribe, you know, right. which is obvious. Well, be, actually, maybe because you know, we've created... Actually question. Geisel, who, who is Dr. Seuss, by the way, was also a political cartoonist who undoubtedly was a racist and an anti-Semite, you know, from his political cartooning. Um, so he's, you know, I understand that he writes children's books. Everybody thinks he's like, you know, some like gentle, great person. Um, but you know what? Is, I don't have that much of a problem. Why With should what? we knowingly give to children stereotypes that are clearly no longer applicable? That clearly are part of systemic hate. Okay. Well, how they, far how, know, how far beyond that do you want to go? Do you want to tear down every statue of everybody that ever had anything? Whoa, 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 whoa. See, there's a huge difference here. Okay. Why hand to children who are very much still malleable? In, in, in terms of what they will take from a book, they're not saying get rid of the books. You want to teach if you want to teach in junior high or high school or college a course on children's literature. You know, show, you can show the originals of these books, but why should we be giving to children something that is very subtly, if not or not so subtly, racist? There have been other children's books that have been revised. Richard Scarry's books have been revised. Roald Dahl's books have been revised. There are books that no longer are given to elementary school students because they clearly come out of a time of colonialism and racism. Right, and I think, I I, I think, I think that. that's an appropriate decision made by teachers, principals, and school boards. 
Uh, and I think an appropriate decision made by parents is not to buy books that they feel are, you know, conveying the wrong images. But, but um, you know, to cancel an entire brand, or in this case, to pull six books. And again, maybe it was partly a business decision because they just weren't selling. Yeah, I just, I think it gets carried away. I think it's getting carried away. Well, what what is the advantage of preserving the book in a mode which you know is going to promote to what's a multiracial you know, populace now these kind of images? It's okay. I, I, I'm not saying burn the book. I'm not saying never publish or you know, see it again. But do it in the context where the kid is mature enough to understand what they're seeing and to question – you know, what, is, what, what was the author trying to do here? All right. Too many people are getting away with saying, oh, no, this is the way the United States was never like this. No, the United States was a, was a racist and anti-Semitic country well into the middle of the last century and continues to be. So, you know, the, wor- the worst thing I think we have right now is American exceptionalism. That, you know, this belief that somehow we're, we're so moral and, and everything we do is okay because it was so mar- much more moral any other country has ever been on Earth. And it's just not true. Yeah, that ties in with the whole myth of uh, manifest destiny, which um, clearly is, a, is, 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 a, is bunk. Um, let me ask you another question relevant to books and cancel culture. Uh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter the, hasn't been canceled, but uh, J.K. Rowling has faced um, pretty severe criticism and backlash because of something she said that were regarded as transphobic. Right. Appropriate or going too far? No, because the books themselves aren't being criticized for promoting that. It's it's the author. There's a lot of despicable authors who wrote books that nevertheless still have value. Um, But, you know, again, I think you really have to say at what point are these books appropriate to be used in the school? Is the child mature enough to be able to, you know, what about Tom Sawyer? Right? I mean, the imagery of Tom Sawyer is clearly racist. Right? Yeah, right. But no one's saying we shouldn't read Mark Twain. Well, no, no, I wouldn't say no one's saying that. There are some who are saying, saying that. Well, I think you read Mark <laughs> Twain as both a historical document, you know, portraying the time in which it was written, and also as a piece of literature, which means you need to have some sophistication to be able to read it. Right. And handing it to a sixth grader is not going to be the time when most sixth graders are sophisticated enough to have any context for reading Mark Twain. All right. So you know, said Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So beyond 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 uh, the the liter- literary element of cancel culture, um, how do you feel about the fact that so many people are being quote canceled? And I love this definition back by the way. Uh, Canceled means to be culturally blocked from having a prominent public platform or career. And there are certainly people whose careers have been totally derailed. Al Franken, Garrison mm-hmm. Keillor, um, they've been completely canceled. <laughs> uh, and, and some would argue that in both those cases, at any rate, it went too far. Obviously, in some cases, yeah, fully deserved. But um, in some cases, it's argued that, well, okay, that, was, um, that would never have happened uh, pre-cancel culture. Um, and that, uh, and that we're kind of, we're kind of going too far in a lot of this. Well, no, I would agree with that. I mean, because it, it, first of all, politically it's a terrible move because it's just playing right into the Fox news viewers, you know, who, who have managed to present themselves as the persecuted majority in this country. Hmm. And, um, 
you know, the other question is that a lot of the canceling is for events that go back to the time that you were like 17 years old. You know, something <laughs> you posted when you were a teenager. Right. You should never be responsible for anything you posted as a teenager. Right, just, right. You know, you're a teenager. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm not much of a supporter of what's going on on the left right now. I mean, it, 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 is, it is just another form of censorship. And um, for the most part, when the audience is an audience that is, is knowledgeable enough to, to be able to listen to something that may be uncomfortable to listen to, it, 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 needs, it needs to be out there so that the people understand this is what goes on in this country. But um, I don't think you should, you should force upon you know, people who are too young to be able and too little knowledge to be able to make these kinds of judgments. Um, you know, these, these old tropes and, and the remnants of, you know, Jim Crow America and, and continuing, you know, systemic hate in this country. Yeah. Uh, that, you know. Fair enough. I, that's, that's, that's an important you, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, this whole issue with the tech companies and, you know, for instance, what the Iowa, you know, legislature is trying to do, which is to try to take away you know, the uh, economic uh, incentives to these companies moving in right. <laughs> uh, because they, they're, they're not allowing, you know, Trump to be on Twitter. You know, the, the fact of the matter is they don't have a legal leg to stand on. The tech companies right. are not the government. They can do what they want. They're not a government. Yeah, they're a private yeah. company. Yeah. It, they already have adjudicated this issue at the Supreme Court, which is the tech right. companies yeah. have the right to censor and control their platform. Yeah. Right. You know. Well, Charles, I got to run to a break. Um, folks, we've been talking with uh, Charles Goldman, and uh, thank you for joining us, Charles. Yep, it's my pleasure. When we come back, uh, Ben Hawksh and Kathy Burns are going to join us. We're going to talk about front yard sugar, maybe making maple syrup in your front yard. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Back to the Fallon format, Fallon Week here, folks. Hey, thanks again to all of our business uh, sponsors, our nonprofit partners. Uh, thanks in particular right now to Gateway Marketing Cafe. Their rewards program is now free for all Gateway shoppers. You can sign up in person or via Gateway's online site, and you earn points by shopping in person or online, and then they redeem those points for discounts at the time of your purchase. The program is valid for everything except for catering and cafe purchases. Check it out, folks, at gatewaymarket.com. 
All right, so hey, we're going to welcome Ben Hawks to the program. Joining me and Kathy Burns here um, via phone from a stump in a woodland in Story County, I believe. Uh, ben, how are you doing? Hey, doing well. Enjoying this little bit of warm-up we got, kind of seeing the last bits of snow hanging on on uh, some north slopes. And you, uh, you have an enterprise called Front Yard Sugar, which I, which I think is a wonderful name, but it requires some explanation. What is Front Yard Sugar? Well, Front Yard Sugar, is kind of, it kind of came out of me being a bit of a drifter for the last 10 years. <laughs> Wait, so drifter or grifter? I learned a bit of a drifter. Drifter, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I learned about making maple syrup back in college. And uh, because I didn't have access to land, I got the idea to start tapping trees in the neighborhood that I lived in. And I tapped a couple the first year in a woman's front yard, girl who I was seeing at the time. And the second year, it turned into her neighbors and some of their neighbors. And year three, it just kind of spread down the block. And since I <laughs> kind of moved to a different town every few years, it kind of evolved into a system where it was a great way to meet the community whenever I moved to a new town and a great way to keep a seasonal tradition alive by incorporating uh, community members by knocking on their door, asking them if they knew they had a maple tree in their yard, <laughs> and then whether or not I could trade them uh, tapping the tree for a little jar of maple syrup. Right. Well, Ben, you seem to have a knack for meeting people in interesting ways. The way that we met you was uh, last spring. We, have, we had our beehives up and running, and we were just not quite in time before the bees started to split. Uh, half of the Half of the bees go up into the trees and try to, to and bring their new queen and try to split that hives. And Ed put a post out on a beekeeping page on Facebook. You were here within about, about an hour. An hour, <laughs> and you helped us uh, not only catch the swarm, but also find more splits inside our hives. And we got video of a queen emerging from a cell and capturing her. So yeah. thanks, Ben. Great way to meet a guy. I'll tell you what, there's. There's some good aspects to social media, that's for sure. It puts good mm -hmm. people in contact with each other if they want to. Sometimes, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, maybe, that, that, this is an amazing uh, type of entrepreneurship. I mean, these are trees that are, you know, you're, 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 they're doing nothing otherwise, except beautifying the world, which is great. Um, but otherwise, that sap is not going to be used. Uh, using that sap does not hurt the tree. And you get a product that is both local and delicious, and, and you earn some, uh, presumably, a little bit of income doing this as well. Yeah, definitely. The, the point of it is that uh, I, I really enjoy uh, getting, getting the landowners involved. Uh, if they have children or they have family members who are interested, I, al I always make sure to schedule a time to tap the trees in their yards when they can be around, you know, letting the children operate the drills and teaching them about the <laughs> biology of the tree and hammering the taps in. You know, there's one yard here in Ames. This is the third year I've tapped the three trees in their yard. And I knocked on the door here in February, and the kids all came screaming out, Ben, the maple tree. So I, I kind of feel like it's um, uh, helping to do some environmental education as well and spreading awareness of the resources that we have even in an urban environment, you know, like you two have been working on in, in the city of Des Moines. You know, there's, there's resources available everywhere, and uh, we just need to be attuned to uh, taking advantage of them. That sounds a lot like part of what I think I understand is your greater mission as uh, an Iowa enthusiast, an outdoor guy. So do you want to talk a little bit about your 
just kind of your broad vision of how you like to do things. Yeah, so I, I guess it's uh, it's a way for me to move seasonally through uh, a yearly cycle in Iowa to where I can um, try to spread awareness about the resources that we have and um, and try to, I guess, get better at these things every year. So, you know, the first year I started off, it was trees in one person's yard. This year, there's over 15 different landowners and 75 trees. Wow. I think I, uh, prop, you know, wearing masks and getting kids involved, you know, we were able to get uh, over 20 children outside, you know, uh, learning how to tap their trees. And wait, wait a minute. Children outside. Aren't You're, they supposed to crazy be? In, aren't they supposed to be in front of screens and doors? <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing how quickly they throw those things down when they have a, a visceral memory, you know, mm -hmm. come, uh, to, to to something like this. You know, right. I, I I always like to joke with the children. It's like, now you don't like pancakes, do you? You don't <laughs> like maple syrup, and they 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 really seem to connect with it. And I I think it's just evidence that uh, as long as we have we take the we take the time to give children the opportunity to do this. Um, they will uh, they will respond and will remember these things. Wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, how many gallons of maple syrup will you plan to have by the end of all this? Well, I'm I'm hoping that this, the season's turning out better than I imagined it was. I had a little scare with thinking that the sap wasn't going to be that sweet because of the drought last year. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think it's I'm probably getting about. 37 uh, gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, no, his, historically, I've had it better than that, but I'm, I've, it's not nothing to shake a stick at, so I'm happy with it. Um, I think if the season spreads like it should, I'm, I'm hoping to make over 50 gallons. You oh. know, it, it, could, it could be 55, yeah. um, which would be which would be great. And that's um, also experimenting with a couple of. Oh, go for it. It's also a lot of firewood. Oh man, yeah, I, I've gone through about <laughs> half my stack so far, and I'd say it was the size of a, a you know a Chevy van. Um, so, uh, going to be uh, taking some of these warm days. You know, if the nights aren't below freezing, the sap doesn't flow. You need a, you need mm -hmm, nights below mm -hmm. and days above. It creates a, a pressure difference that temperature difference does, and that actually causes the sap to flow. So, I've got a few days off here, enjoying this nice weather, and uh, going to go split some more firewood while I have time. Ben, what have you noticed uh, over the years, or what do you understand historically about the way making maple syrup or other springtime activities has changed in Iowa due to climate change? Yeah, so historically, um, the fire regime that Iowa had as, uh, you know, tall grass prairie and savannah that was maintained by lightning strikes and native people you know, the, the, the range of black maples or sugar and sugar maples in Iowa, which are our primary sugar trees, and the trees that Native people used to make uh, maple sugar, um, weren't that widespread in Iowa. So the trees that I'm tapping even down here in the bottomlands of Iowa Creek north of town, um, they're first-generation, you know, uh, uh, trees that would have been kept out of the valley by fire. So with European settlements, the cessation of fire on the landscape has caused these trees to grow. So that's good for a sugar producer. But at the same time, um, how uh, global weirding, I, I, I guess <laughs> I, I more say it as, um, has definitely affected the when the sap starts to flow and how long it flows. So uh, traditionally, um, I guess you, it's hard to say anything for weather, but climatically, um, 
these warm-ups in really early Feb in, in, in late February and early March that are sustained are something that um, really isn't traditional around here. Um, it, it kind of throws wrenches in my season to the point where the last two years we've had a, a, over a week of warm weather where syrup production is just shut down. Mm, and wow. I've been fearful for uh, the end of the season. You know, these springs coming earlier and snows mm. uh, disappearing, it's, it, it makes for a season that isn't as predictable. And I guess that fits into the, the cycle of what I'm trying to do on a yearly annual basis. It's to diversify, you know, so even if the maple syrup crop is, uh, is failing due to global weirding that season, you know, I still have something uh, up my sleeve for the, for the time when all the, the plants start to grow. Well, Ben, we, uh, we got to wrap it up. I really thank you for taking the time to join us. Folks. Yeah, no worries. I'm always happy to hear from you guys and uh, happy to hear about all the stuff that you've got going on at uh, the farm there in Des Moines. Folks, we've been talking with Ben Hawksh about maple syrup, uh, making maple syrup, in fact, in your front yard. Great story, Ben. Good luck. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about that, perhaps check out some of your syrup, where do they go? Uh, I've got a website. It is ephemeralmidwest.com. You could also just do a Google search for front yard sugar, and it should pop right up. Ben, thanks so much. And, folks, thanks to all of our guests today. Thanks to uh, Dave Funk, to Maria Ravis, to Charles Goldman, and to Ben and to Kathy Burns. Uh, thanks also to our local business partners, uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, uh, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Noche Jazz and Cabaret. And thanks to our nonprofit partners as well, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to Brother Trucker, the band Brother Trucker, for providing our bumper music, a tune called Downtown. And of course, thanks to our production squad of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Please subscribe to the Fallon Forum on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, of course, and send me an email at ed at fallonforum.com and we'll keep in touch with my weekly blog. Again, thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. This is your host, Ed Fallon. Back with you next week, folks.